Good morning. Come on, it's me. John. All right, think of me as a guest speaker. Yeah, I'm getting a lot about shaving and doing it left-handed. And I just want you to know that I've got enough on my plate right now. I don't want to shave every day, especially with my bad, you know, my, my weak hand. So cool it. <laughs> You're just going to have to, don't, shut your eyes. Close them. Let, just listen. <laughs> oh my, thank you for your prayers and uh, cards and emails. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to send Corey out to love the unlovely after uh, asking everybody to send me emails. Do you know how difficult it is to reply to emails when you're right-handed and you can only type with your left hand? I mean, that's like backwards and upside down and everything else, but I really did appreciate all the encouragement and the sentiments, the cards. I even got a, a t-shirt. Somebody bought me a t-shirt. It was a Woodstock t-shirt. <laughs> So there's that. Um, we're starting a new series, Faith Works, from the book of James. I came to Christ at 19 on a canal bank in Modesto, California, part of the Central Valley. We know about canals out here. And uh, one of the first things I took me a while to get to church, but one of the first things that I was introduced to after I started going to church were some other Christians, and after church we'd meet in the park, and we'd read out of the Bible, and I was introduced to Proverbs. I hope you've all had a chance to at some time or another read out of the book of Proverbs. Uh, it's really a good exercise for daily reading because there are 31 chapters, and uh, you can read uh, a chapter every day, if you like, for each day of the month, or just read a couple of Proverbs. But I was drawn to Proverbs. They were so practical and straightforward, and even though they were set in a very ancient time, very foreign to my own, I could still understand the principles and the things that were being taught. And one of the things I remember that impressed me pretty powerfully were the, in those opening eight chapters of Proverbs, you hear about Dame Wisdom, and wisdom portrayed as a virtuous woman as opposed to an unvirtuous woman and kind of the tug-of-war for the heart of a person. Uh, who are you going to follow? And Dame w Wisdom says, seek wisdom, seek me above silver or gold. Become wise. Seek wisdom above silver and gold. Well, I didn't have to be taught that silver and gold stands for money. And at a very young age, certainly you don't have to wait until you, even you're 19, you learn very quickly that money makes the world go round. Mon time is money. Everything is money. Money, money, money. 
Be happy. Well, if I only had money. Money is happiness. Money solves all the problems of my life. These are the messages that we're getting constantly, constantly. Get on the internet, turn on the TV, listen to the radio. They're all driven by commercials. And commercials mean money because commercials are all about selling you things. And boy, if you could just get some of those things, life would be so much better. I'd be shaved this morning. I'd be prettier, stronger, more liked, adored. But here in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is saying, seek me before money. I'm worth more than silver, more than gold. I took that to heart. I never lost sight of that calling to be, to be wise. Not always smart, but wise. And of course, the story of wisdom in the Old Testament is that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That means putting God first. Boy, isn't that a battle? Because I want to put my first, myself first. That just comes naturally. That's my default mode of life. John first. That's why money and all these things matter so much. But as I sought to put God first, wisdom takes root. Part of that's because when God gets in your life, you start to experience self-control and all kinds of other virtuous fruit. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's about things bigger and more important in life. And that starts to make life meaningful in a way that I found when the meaning of life was John did not satisfy. Because I knew that was a lie as much as I tried to make it true. It's not all about me. And when I make it all about me, it isn't that meaningful. It's a dead end. It's a dry well. It's a tree with no leaves. Well, I was drawn in the New Testament to James for these same reasons, because James is kind of the New Testament equivalent to Old Testament wisdom. That isn't entirely surprising, because... Uh, the Jewish people, if they're devout at all, they feed on the Word of God, and the Word of God is all about wisdom. And James is rooted in that heritage. James, 
I loved because it reminded me of Proverbs and it reminded me of Jesus and his teachings. And that's very important to remember. I think of uh, James as the Joe Friday of the New Testament writers. You know, just the facts, ma'am. Some of you maybe saw that uh, in reruns. <laughs> but uh, Joe Friday is, uh, he's a lieutenant police officer, and he and his partner, they go out and solve crime. But he's, he's Mr. Straight Talk, Mr. Down to Business, no frills. Let's just get to the point. Just the facts, ma'am. James kind of reminds me of that. When you read James, yeah, it shoots straight. It gets to the point. Not a lot of frills. Uh, not a lot of petting or sweet talk. Just straight talk. And that's uh, important to appreciate. Let me just give you a really quick sketch of James, the person behind the letter. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we know that from Matthew 13:55, among other sources. Uh, he didn't really come to Christ. In John chapter 7, we know the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him. And it is from some of the resurrection accounts that we find James is named. And so scholars tend to believe that James came to a, what we would call a devoted faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord through his resurrection. And that's not entirely surprising, is it? What's often overlooked is that James became the leader, the head. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, that's a pretty heady appointment. And in fact, it is after Paul comes to Christ and he begins to follow the call of God to all of these churches. He leaves, so to speak, uh, Jerusalem, and he takes the gospel, he takes the news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are everybody that isn't Jewish. So he takes Jesus Christ to the pagans, which is the everybody that isn't Jewish. See, strictly defined, a pagan is someone who believes in many gods. And in the world, everybody believed in the supernatural of some kind. And just as in these various regions and, and histories of people, they believed in many gods. And Paul began to take the gospel to synagogues planted all over the Roman Empire and bring the gospel not only to the synagogues first, because the Jews needed to hear that the Messiah had come and God had raised him from the dead. And that he also then began to take it 
to the pagans. It's kind of hard to think about that, you know. Everybody that wasn't a Jew is pagan. Everyone that isn't Jewish is Gentile, and it becomes a shorthand term for all the rest of us. James was the head of the church of Jerusalem, and when Paul began that ministry, he wanted the blessing of James and the church of Jerusalem, the believers, the pillars of the church. And so we read about that in Acts 15. And it was James, this James, that gave Paul a big howdy-do. Go on out there and, and get him. Just don't do a couple of things that would, would be really offensive. James was called the just. Can you imagine that? I was thinking about that this week, you know. John the just. What does that communicate to you? Well, that's a guy who's really fair. And often a person who's fair is not harsh. They see the big picture, you know. They temper justice with mercy. And James has that kind of reputation. He's a good guy. He holds himself to a higher standard, but he has mercy toward others. And yet, he's known for a guy who does the right thing. He's a principled man. They say, and this comes from uh, sources very early, like before 130, there's an early church father called Hegesippus, and he records that they called him camel knees. Camel knees. I don't know. How do you often see camels? If they're not standing, they're down on their front knees, aren't they? And they get this kind of a leathery, hardened, calloused. Well, that's James. Hegesippus tells us he was called camel knees because he was always on his knees worshiping the Lord and interceding for others. He was martyred in AD 62. That's about the time Paul, we believe, was arrested and taken to Rome, where he was ultimately, we believe, tried before the emperor, which was Nero. At that time, James had been arrested. Uh, excuse me, had not been arrested. He had been called by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They wanted him to kind of dampen the spirits of the Christians because... They were getting unruly, according to their view. Uh, they wanted James to stand up because the people followed James. They respected his opinion. He was a leader of the people. He was an influencer. So they said, James, get up there and be an influencer and fix this thing. Well, he wouldn't deny in any way. He used the occasion to bear witness to his devotion and commitment to Jesus. And to stop him, they threw him. They pushed him off the pinnacle from which he was standing. And then those on the ground where he had tumbled took up stones and started stoning him. 
somebody intervened and said, look, he's praying for us. And somebody finished him off with what's called a fuller's club. Like taking a bath and putting him out of his misery. He gave his life for his testimony to Christ. He went the distance. He was an influencer. He was just. He was known for prayer and worship. That's a pretty model person, if you ask me. He leaves us this letter. Many would argue, and I think argue well, that it's the earliest letter of the New Testament. Actually, even though the Gospels talk about times earlier, it was written before our Gospels. It was written before Paul's first letters. Many would point, put it around A.D. 47. And James, we're told in the very first verse, is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, uh, he's probably writing, as uh, I plotted when I said 47, that would be after the martyrdom of Stephen when he was stoned to death. And Paul held the, the cloaks of those who were putting Stephen to death. We plot that around A.D. 36. It was after that time, we're told in Acts 8, chapter 1, uh, cha cha verse 1, that the church was scattered by persecution. So it may, in fact, be that James has heard of the difficulties of some issues that they are facing as they have been displaced from Jerusalem and are now dwelling in other parts of the Roman Empire, parts of the Mediterranean, in, a, in, in what to them is foreign land when they belong to the environs of Jerusalem. And it, it would be hard. Can you imagine being displaced? Of course, in America, we're so mobile. Our whole identity, our whole culture is built on the mobility that has been forged by the automobile. Our lives have been forged by the automobile and the mobility and the way we just get up and go. The idea of something being home is kind of a transient, uh, effervescent, passing sort of thing. It's not much more than nostalgia for Americans. But for these people, home was home. All your connections are there. Your roots are there. To all of a sudden be transplanted, you're now a foreigner in a foreign land. You're, you're a sojourner. You're an alien. And it's hard to put down roots in another place. Hard to find work. Hard to be established. Some of them, now listen, all of society then was either rich or poor. There was no middle class. So the poor get poorer when they're displaced. The rich seem to do better, but they're more tight-fisted because, man, their money's 
really important to them. So James writes about these things, we believe, to the Christians that are scattered all over, just like the Jews, and the dispersion or dispersed was referring traditionally to the Jewish tribes that had been dispersed after Jerusalem was destroyed under Cyrus, um, under the Babylonians, excuse me, and then they were able to come home under Cyrus, but many Jews continued to be salted all over. Anyway, James uses this picture to write to the Christians uh, to encourage them, and he sure picks up some amazing themes in this letter, and you will see a lot about the rich and the poor. His theme here is faith in action. Faith in action. True faith. And uh, so we're going to have a series called Faith Works. By faith works, I mean try it. You'll like it. You know, try faith. You'll like it. That's one aspect of what I mean when I say faith works. Um, exercise your faith in God. And there's another element. It means we practice what we preach. Faith works. That doesn't mean we fail. But that's what we strive for. We strive to be authentic. So we express a faith in God. We express a faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We express a faith in the truth that's revealed in his word. We stand in our minds for certain things, but we also want to stand for them in our hearts. When we fail, it grieves us because we know we failed doesn't mean we're cast off because we failed. That's what Jesus went to the cross for and died for, to say we have a covenant that can't be violated by your failings. No amount of other sacrifice is going to make you more loved than you are right now because God loves you. You are loved in Christ, and that's demonstrated in his sacrificial love. So we're in an inviolable covenant that can't be destroyed. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to be a better version of ourselves because that's what we're called to, to be Christ-like in who we are and all we are. That's what inspires us, by the way. That's what inspires me because I so admire Jesus. He inspires me. And that's true of the New Testament. And that's true of James. Billy Graham said, speaking of faith in action or faith works, Billy Graham said, it does not matter how big your faith is, but rather where your faith is. That's so vital. And that's the essence of James. Where is your faith? In this first chapter, 
By the way, the whole, the whole book is telling us about what faith looks like, what we could call it true faith. Just the, in the first chapter, in verses 2 through 4, how does true fa- faith react to troubles? James gives us the answer. In verses 5 through 8, where, where does true faith turn when it's perplexed or confused? And he gives us the answer. In verses 9 through 11, is, is true faith dependent upon success? And what's the definition of success? He gives us the answer. In verses 12 through 18, will true faith turn against God when tests trigger temptation? Not true faith, James says, and he gives us the answer. In verses 19 through 27, how does faith, true faith, react when it's provoked? James gives us the answer. I hope you'll be reading chapter 1. So this morning, is your faith at work or hardly working? The overall message that we're going to look at in verses 2 through 4 is this. When we face trials, let's see them with joy, submitting to God and knowing he is using them for the growth of our faith and for Christ's likeness. Today's message is really about this. Perk up. Faith works. And uh, let's look at James chapter 1. I want to read verses 2 through 4. I'll start with verse 1, though, so we can read the introduction, uh, the greeting. Uh, My brothers, and you truly need to understand the word brother in, in usage was used generically. So brothers and sisters... My brothers and sisters, show no partiality. I'm sorry, in the wrong chapter. Let me start at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Well, perk up. I mean, I've tried to think about how how do I address this, you know, because every trial, every difficulty... In other words, life, life is a test, James says. And treat everything that life throws at you as a test and see it, count it, regard it, consider it an occasion for joy. That's the subject of true faith. Working faith sees things that the world just doesn't see. Working faith sees joy. Working faith develops endurance. 
working faith grows complete. Working faith sees joy. That's what... (laughs) When he says, consider it, some of your translations say, count it, regard it, see it as an occasion for joy. Because true faith, listen, true faith is hardy. True faith glows in the dark. Do you know why? I already told you. Because our faith is in a big, big God. That's it. In short, anybody can have faith. But our faith is in the God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ and after his death raised him from the dead. That's the faith that I'm talking about. That's the faith that James is talking about. That's what we would call true faith, real faith, authentic faith. That's the key. We're not just talking about faith. If you have faith in yourself, well, I'll use myself as an example. Uh, There was a time I wouldn't because I don't like to make myself the butt of jokes. But now, with true faith, I laugh at myself all the time. So I'll make myself the object of this illustration. If I put, if my faith is in myself, I whine. I cry. I get angry. I get upset. I say, why me? It's not fair. I don't deserve this. That's faith in me. That's not the faith that James is talking about. Faith in me, or if I put my faith in you. Do you know what I sound like then? Just the same. It's faith in the Lord that makes it different. Whose Lord? Is your Lord the Lord I'm talking about? Is is our Lord the Lord that James is talking about? The Lord that James is talking about is the Lord, the God, who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So you see, faith is defined by the one or the thing or the object that we put our faith in. Anything you put your faith in can let you down, fail you. But see, when we put our faith in the God of Jesus Christ, we can see blessing in the midst of difficulties. Does that make sense? Because what James is telling us here is that he has a purpose for our lives. He has an objective. He is like a good parent. Really, If there are any parents in this room, now you may feel like a failure. We always tend to gravitate and see all the things we've done wrong. But what you've been trying to do is prepare your children for living and thriving in a tough, tough world. So how do you prepare them? By cutting their food for them? By pampering them? by doing everything for them, when they whine and want you to do something, 
Do you rush over and do it for them? Do you give them their heart's desire at every turn? Do you believe you've been put on earth to bear this child so that you could just serve the child? I don't think there's a parent in this room or anyone who aspires to parenting that thinks of parenting, good parenting, true parenting that way. Because you wouldn't prepare that child for the world. In fact, you're going to have that child with you for the rest of your life. It won't be a loyal love. It'll be a love contingent on you serving their every desire. But you see, that doesn't prepare us for having children, does it? God wants to prepare us for having spiritual children. He wants to prepare us for living in the world in a way that shines the light of Jesus Christ in a very authentic way. We don't need Jesus if all of life is just to pamper, indulge, and satisfy ourselves. We can do that without him. In fact, that is the way of the world. And if you want to be a scientist about it, then get descriptive and begin to describe what's going on. Get out there and study the world. Study other people. Find out what is going on in their lives. See the results of self-indulgence, self-pampering. But you see, God isn't a genie. It's not about rubbing a bottle and making wishes. It's about becoming Christ-like. And God, like a good parent, has a purpose and a plan for our lives to make us Christ-like. And that means to prepare us for a rude, cruel world. <laughs> Again, well, why doesn't God just fix it all? We would just destroy it. We did in the first place. This is the better way, folks. He's training us. So it's not the size of our faith, it's the size of our God, because faith is moving with God, and Jesus is our goal and our guiding light. Faith is not magic, because God doesn't dabble in magic. Magic is about power without any hardship. But you see, when you have power without any hardships, no suffering, no tears, you mismanage that power. Joy, I realize, is counterintuitive. For the Christ-like, bad conceals blessing. And it all hinges on faith in God. You know, joy can be a feeling, but it can also involve a cause. And when we can see a trial as a cause of that joy, it helps us to appreciate that 
there are there is joy in the midst of difficulties do I fail yes I do but it's not about it's not about scorekeeping I mean it might be with you but it's not with God it's not about scorekeeping it's about growing it's about working faith and I'm that way with my kids and I'm that way with other people that I may have some small or organizational responsibility over I'm interested in the heart the desire of their lives where they're trying to go if you stumble because you're trying if you fail because you're trying I got to tell you I admire that let me help you up let's go at it again that's the Christian life it really is that's the Christian life I'm committed to none of this well we're not perfect so let's hide all of our imperfections let's not be honest about let's get serious and genuine about what we're really trying to do we're trying to be more like Jesus and along the way we help each other and when we're climbing the mountain and one stumbles we give him a hand and we help pull him up that's the way it is in all other acts of life that I've been involved in team sports climbing cycling the people I want to ride with climb with play with are people that want to succeed together and that's what Christianity is all about it's called the church makes sense doesn't it so don't we we don't get our jollies in pointing out the failings of others instead we rush to their side and we help them up and we move on together working faith sees joy working faith de develops endurance that's what James says in verse 3 perk up there's reason for joy and the reason is you gain endurance what's endurance well endurance is not giving up not quitting and it's especially not quitting on God it involves courage because endurance doesn't come easy you you can't you can't develop endurance unless you're trying to go somewhere if you're just waiting you're trapped you're not going anywhere you're actually trapped you're stuck but if you're trying to go somewhere you endure you don't just wait patience isn't just waiting it's waiting with a good attitude you know and endurance runs in that same vein but it has to do with a direction a desire when I cycle I hope to be cycling again sometime we used to do a lot of mountaining mountain climbing and uh, we go over Rocky Hill and we go up Yoko Valley and there's an oak tree up there we go over Blue Ridge we go over to Springville we go all over it's wonderful I got to know Visalia and all the environs south north east and west but there's one ride we do called up to the tr oak tree on Yoko Valley and as we were going up the road I mean the first time I went up to that it was it was the greatest achievement of my life and then one day we're going up there you know you, I, I sweat I sweat I'm dripping with sweat and I'm trudging 
And inside I'm going, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And on the road, it was, this was, somebody took a spray can in white letters, wrote it right on the road as you, on the right-hand side, because it's not for going down, it's for the people going up. It said this, it doesn't get easier. You just get faster, Greg LeMond. That's true. That's endurance. It doesn't get easier. If it gets easier, it's not endurance. You're either going downhill or you're standing still. Endurance involves degrees because... Development doesn't happen all at once. You might be saved, so to speak, in a moment. You might be awarded all kinds of assurances and promises and blessings in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing is in him. You have all of him in a decision, in a commitment, in a moment. But my Lord, that's not, it's not over then. It doesn't stop then. If it does, you're stuck. You're standing still. You're waiting. And we're supposed to be growing. This is a high calling, not a low calling. Good things come to those who wait. I believe that. But this is not waiting. This is endurance. Do you realize endurance is not a divine attribute? Think about it a moment. God is not, his attributes do not consist of endurance. Patience, yes. Endurance, no. That is a human attribute. And that's what we're called to. Endurance. Endurance is courage in God. And you know what that's called? True faith. True faith. James is not alone in this. Paul and Peter say this too. In fact, Paul in Romans 5, 3 through 4, I really spent quite a bit of time comparing these this past week, and I'm not going to do the whole comparison, but what does Paul say? He says, knowing that, verse 3 of Romans 5, suffering produces endurance, Verse 4, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Same kind of theme. Peter picks up the same thing, too. In 1 Peter 1.7, he says, trials show the proven character and genuineness of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold. More valuable than gold that's been tested by fire. In other words, the purest kind of gold, the priciest kind of gold. And 
it results in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ and the bearer. So that brings me in very quickly to the last point, complete. Oops, I had it already up there. Working faith grows complete. What's the ultimate goal of faith? It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. You know, my... Um, I have a really good waterproof jacket. It's Gore-Tex for snow, sleet, rain. I never get to wear it. When I wear it on sunny days, it's the perfect waterproof jacket. Our faith is not made for sunny days alone. It's made for bad weather. Our faith is the best, finest form of Gore-Tex because it stands up in the weather. It does no good to have a, a great rain jacket if you're not going to wear it in the rain. That's what we're built for in Christ. Man, the world wants to see that kind of faith more than anything more than anything in the world. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. I want to remind you as we close, if God has put something on your heart, you want to pray about it, whether it's to give your life, more of your life to Jesus Christ, to, to get serious about this, to intercede for someone, to ask us to intercede for you. We invite you to come. Um, we'll be up here for prayer. Um, I hope you can take what I've said to heart, even though I look very suspicious this morning. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We, loved, we love you because you first loved us, which means that you love us even when we don't love you. You love us when we fall down. You just keep loving us. Help that to sink into our hearts today because that's the fount of all this endurance and all this joy, even in the face of trials. It's the source of true faith. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.